We were going to sing two, but we'll hold it to one. Some got the message and some didn't, so that's okay. This morning I'd like to begin from the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us, and run this race with patience, looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. Take notice how this chapter opens up. Wherefore, when you read the word wherefore, therefore, it always has reference to information that's gone on just before that. So wherefore we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. The word compassed means to encircle, to circle around. He says you're, you're surrounded, in other words, with a great cloud of witnesses. And the witnesses under consideration are listed for us in the previous chapter in chapter 11. Now a witness or witnesses have always been very important both in biblical history and secular history as well. A witness is someone who testifies, oftentimes testifying what they have heard or what they have seen. The witnesses in chapter 11 are witnesses in a different sort. They're witnesses unto us. They're bearing witness with us. But again, witnesses uh, have been very important in dealing and settle in certain matters, you know, between individuals and between countries, etc. There are such things as a faithful witness and a false witness. Solomon in the book of Proverbs mentions these type of witnesses on several occasions. We read in Proverbs 14 and 5 where it says, A faithful witness will speak truth. An unfaithful witness will speak lies. That's the one constant characteristic of false witness He speaks lies. In the 25th verse, it says a truthful witness will bring deliverance, but a deceitful witness will speak lies. Now we find where false witnesses have been used throughout history. Uh, In biblical history, if you turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 21, you'll find where Jezebel used two false witnesses uh, to bring about the death of Naboth. Naboth had a vineyard. Her husband Ahab, a very wicked ruler, wanted his vineyard. But that vineyard meant a lot to Naboth. It was a family inheritance. He didn't want to sell it, he didn't want to trade it. It was in his rights to do that. But Ahab wanted it and told Jezebel, and Jezebel came up with a plan where she would have two false witnesses. And this was important because the Lord required at least two witnesses to settle any offense, preferably three. You go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, you'll find where the writer tells us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. You cannot stone someone to death with the mouth of one witness. It required at least two, and again, three being preferable. So she gets two witnesses, but they're false witnesses. And they testify against Naboth that he had blasphemed God, which was a lie. He had not. But the charge was made, the witnesses laid there, and they took Naboth out, and they stoned him to death. 
Then Jezebel told Ahab he could have Naboth's vineyard. When the Lord Jesus Christ was on trial, we find the Jews sought for witnesses. And they looked in the beginning, they could not find any witnesses. Finally, they found some false witnesses. But the first false witnesses, they couldn't get their testimony to agree. And that's the way it is when your testimony is false. But finally, they got two false witnesses that said the same thing. They said this here deceiver said he would destroy the temple in three days. He would raise it up again. And upon hearing that, the high priest said, what further need we have of any witnesses? Crucify him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was found guilty on the basis of two false witnesses. Now, this same principle applied even in the New Testament day. 1 Timothy 5 and 19, the apostle says, Receive not an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. If you're ever in conversation with somebody and, and that individual starts speaking in a demeaning way against an elder and there's no other witnesses around, you need to walk away. Or you need to say, well, I, I can't receive this because we don't have others here as witnesses. You be sure you have two or three witnesses in that situation. Again, receive not an accusation against an elder except between two or three witnesses. In Matthew chapter 18, the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with the subject of offenses. Yes, sometimes people get offended, believe it or not. Every now and then, somebody gets offended. They think someone didn't speak to them. They think someone didn't shake their hand, and that really gets into it right now. But anyway, uh, there are reasons for that. Uh, somebody thinks somebody ignored them uh, or said something they took out of context. Whatever the case may be, sometimes somebody is offended, and the Lord says, well, you settle that. If you're offended, you go to the person who offended you, and you tell them about the offense and talk it out, and that should settle it. But if it doesn't, then you take one or two with you in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So he gives us this principle here, even in the New Testament day. A false witness was a serious thing. In fact, the Lord uh, tells us in Deuteronomy once again, that if a, one man came against another man on an accusation, and you don't have the two or three witnesses, then the priest and the judges would inquire into the matter diligently, and if they found out that this witness was not telling the truth, he was a false witness, then what he wanted to do to the other man is turn around and done unto him that all persons might fear. Being a false witness was a serious thing. The ninth of the Ten Commandments deals with this. The Lord gave those Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The ninth one is this, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Proverbs chapter 6 we find where it says, These six things that the Lord hate, and the seventh abomination in his sight. And the sixth thing is a false witness. The Lord hates a false witness. See, God, who is truth personified. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me except by the Father. Jesus Christ is truth personified. And so with truth personified, here's that which is not true, a lie. Then he hates that. We should never tell that which is not true. People do that quite frequently and think really nothing much about it. But God thinks about it. God knows when we are telling the truth and when we're not. So witnesses have always been very important. And sometimes witnesses aren't even people. Witnesses can be things. 
You look in Genesis chapter 21, you'll find where Abraham had a controversy with another king of another nation, Abimelech. He'd already had some dealings with him earlier. And now we find where Abimelech's servants had finally taken away a well that Abraham's servants had digged. Abraham confronts him on it. The king denies it. But we find where Abraham settled the issue by giving him seven ewe lambs. And the king says, what are these? He says, this is a witness. That when you see these ewe lambs, this is a witness that you know this is my well. And I dug this well. And he called the name of that well Beersheba, which means the well of the oath. In the 31st chapter of Genesis, you find in the latter days of the time that Jacob spent with Laban, his uncle Laban, uh, that Jacob has seen that the time to leave has come. And he has served Uncle Laban for 20 years. He served 14 years for his two wives, Leah and Rachel. He then served six more years and finds out that Laban changed his wages 10 times. You know, Jacob was a deceiver himself and a supplanter in his earlier days. He met his match in his uncle Laban. He was just as much a deceiver and a supplanter as Jacob was. So we see this gets into the principle of sowing and reaping. Whatsoever you sow, that shall you also reap. And so we find he leaves without telling Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban pursues him, and Uncle Laban overtakes him. But before he gets there, God appears to Uncle Laban in a dream and warns Laban not to touch Jacob. I don't know if Jacob ever knew about that or not. Aren't you glad that God can do things in your life that benefits you? He didn't even have to tell you about it. <laughs> All the time, no doubt, you've benefited from the hand of God's providence in your life, and God just didn't even tell you about it, but you ought to think about it. I, I think about the times I don't know as well as the times that I do know, because I know there are those times that's happened in my life. So when Laban got there, he wasn't a happy man, but he knew not to touch Jacob. And so in the end, they built a, an altar of stones. And that became a witness between the two that he would not go on that side of the stones to harm Laban. He would not come on this side of the stones to harm him. We'll look at the fifth chapter in the book of James. And James here is rebuking the wealthy, not because they have wealth, but because they haven't used it properly. He says, your silver and your gold, he says, uh, they are cankered, and the rest of them are a witness against you. He says, your silver and gold are witness against you that you have oppressed the poor. You've not helped people. You've had the means and have not done it. What was the witness here? The witness was gold and silver. They still had their gold. They still had the silver. Other people had nothing. They had not done anything to help them. They had oppressed them even. So gold and silver became a witness. Stones became a witness. Seven new lambs became a witness. So witnesses can be things in addition to people. Correct? Now, I read over here in the book of Job, chapter 16 and verse 19, one of the outstanding things that Job says. And I say one of the outstanding things because Job said a lot of outstanding things. The book of Job is an interesting book because it's all about the life of Job. Many other books have the title of men's names, but it's really not so much about them. Uh, for example, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is really not about Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is about God, the God that Isaiah served as a prophet. And we find many prophecies in the book of Isaiah concerning God, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, both in time and also in eternity. But the book really is not about Isaiah. The book of Ruth is about Ruth. The book of Esther is about Esther. And the book of Job is about Job. 
And we should be somewhat familiar with this book. We know that Job was going along, everything seemingly going pretty well, and then things began to go wrong. He began to get reports. Uh, you know, one came right after another. Uh, we hear that expression oftentimes. Well, it just seemed like it's one thing after another. Well, that is reality. That's the truth. And if you're waiting for a period of time when there won't be another, you're going to wait a long time, I tell you that, because one thing is going to come right after another. Does not our life testify on that? Is that not a witness about it? I think about like the waves of the sea when you're standing there and one wave comes in. A couple seconds later, another wave comes in. I've never been to the ocean yet, but I can see just one wave right after another coming right on in to the shore. That's the way problems are in life. It's just one thing after another. Job loses his camels. He loses the, the she-asses. Uh, he loses uh, the oxen. Then he loses uh, uh, many of his children. And you wonder just how much can a man take, right? Just how much can a man take here in this life? Well, Job took a lot because Job walked close with God. And God said this about Job unto Satan. Has thou considered my servant Job? He's a man that eschews evil. He's a man that prays. He describes Job as a very godly, righteous man. And of course, Satan, God knew Job better than Satan did. And Satan says the only reason uh, he serves you is because you built a hedge around him of protection and blessings upon him. That's the only reason he serves you. But God knew better. Now, that all the tri trials of Job, he said things like this. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He said, I'm going to trust in him, and no matter what happens to me, I'm going to trust in God. I, I love, uh, in the uh, 16, uh, 19th chapter, I believe it is, of Job, where he said, oh, my words were now written in a book, that they were laid in the rock with an iron pen. He said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day. And though the skin worms destroy this my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That was spoken by a man that lived in a time that the book of Job is going to be the oldest book of the 66 books of the Bible. It was spoken by a man who didn't have the gospel record. It spoken by a man who didn't have the scriptures in, 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 in his possession. There were no scriptures at that time. But he knew this. He knew he had a Redeemer. He said, I know that my Redeemer, he knew he had a personal Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day. And though the skin worm destroy this, my body, yes, my body shall decay. My body shall go back to the dust in which it came. Though the skin worm destroy this, my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's a lot of gospel information for a man who never heard the gospel. <laughs> so how did Job know all that? You think God is restricted the revelation he can give somebody in any given period of time? Absolutely not. God has showed him all of that. When I'm tried, yet I shall come forth as gold. But here's the verse I want to dwell on just for a moment or two. He says, my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. The word translated witness is the same word translated record. My witness is where? My witness is in heaven. Who did Job have to stand up for him? I read of no one. I read where three men came to Job supposedly to comfort him. But before it's all over with, Job says, your physicians are no value. You're just miserable comforters. If you read everything they said to him, while well, they said a lot of things that was true, they mischaracterized Job and they mischarged Job by being a hypocrite and guilty of some major sin when neither one was true. So Job says, my witness is in heaven. 
says, my prayers are pure. I've never taken anything from any man that was wrong. And Job is so sure that he calls upon God to be his witness. Now, have you ever said something like that? Somebody said something to you about something you were talking about, and you say, now God is my witness. You want to be careful when you say that. Because God could be a witness for you, and God could be a witness against you. <laughs> if what you're saying is wrong, God will testify against you. If what you're saying is right, God will testify for you. That's what a witness does, does he not? You know, you got in a court, you have the, the witness for the prosecution, you got the witness for the defense. And, you know, the prosecution is going to attack the credibility of the witness uh, for the prosecution or vice versa. Each one's going to try to attack the credibility. So you need to have a witness that has credibility and integrity to get on that stand because either a prosecutor, defense lawyer, either one, whichever one it may be, they're going to try to attack that person's integrity and that person's credibility. But you see, you can't do that with God. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. <laughs> a faithful witness speaks his truth. You're going to try to attack the credibility of God? Or are you going to try to attack the integrity of God? <laughs> you're going to fall short, aren't you? God cannot lie. God cannot misguide and direct. God is the God of truth. He's truth personified. He's a faithful witness. And Job says, My witness is in heaven. His witness was God. Where's God at? God's in heaven. That's God's place of abode. That's where the throne of God is. That's where God sits upon that throne, looking down upon this earth as his footstool. And Job says, God, who's in heaven, who's omniscient, who knows all things, is my witness. I think he has primary reference here to the omniscience of God. I know Job believed in the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God, but now to the omniscience of God because there's nothing that God does not know. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 23, 23. The Lord asked three questions. He said, Am I a God afar off and not a God nearby? Thus saith the Lord. Can any man hide himself in secret places? I shall not see him. Thus saith the Lord. Is that true? Can any man hide himself in secret places? That God wouldn't see him? No, he cannot. Is God just a God close by, but not a God far off? Is a God far off, not a God nearby? No, he's not. He's a God in both places, is he not? He is omnipresent. All right? Here are questions concerning the omniscience of God. Job is appealing to the omniscience of God. God is my witness. He will testify on my behalf. And my record is my witness in heaven. My record is on high. There's an accurate account in heaven of my life. That's sobering and comforting at the same time, is it not? To know that God knows everything about us, knows everything about our lives. Uh, you're never going to hide anything from God. Can any man hide himself in secret places? No, he cannot because God is God and God is omniscient. He knows all things. He's never surprised at anything, not anything whatsoever. And we find where Job knew that God understood everything about him and God knew everything about him. And he knew that he was not guilty of hypocrisy in religion. He knew he was not guilty of oppressing the poor. He knew he was not guilty of all the false charges that his so-called three friends were saying to him. Now, there are times we all need to be comforted, but when I do, please don't comfort me the way they tried to comfort Job. <laughs> I don't need that kind of comfort. I know I've told uh, this before, but there's some here I'm sure haven't heard it. 
We got ready to move from North Carolina to Florida. We was trying to figure out how in the world we were going to move down there. And uh, our neighbor, she was a member of the church there, an entrepreneur Baptist church, her and her husband, he was in the military, and they moved all over the country. And she come to see us and try to give us some good advice. And she told me how all our furniture was going to get cracked, going to get broke, going to get scratched, one thing and another. And finally, I was so happy to see her taillights going down the road. She was a miserable failure. <laughs> she didn't help at all. I said, Karen, don't worry about it. She had Karen in tears. I said, don't worry about it. I said, we're packing ourselves. Well, that didn't help a lot. Uh, but uh, anyway, the point being, we're going to be careful. <laughs> we're going to take care of it. We're going to be careful. And sure enough, we didn't break anything. Nothing got broke. Had one, two little scratches. Not about the sum of it. The Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, wherefore, comfort one another with the comfort whereby you have been comforted yourself. That's the comfort you to use. When God has comforted you, you go and you comfort somebody with the same comfort God gave you. Works for you, works for them. Job said, my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. God knows everything there is about me. And he'll testify, I believe Job is saying, he'll testify on my behalf. He'll testify for me concerning the things that's gone forth in my life. In the end, God did just that. You know, Job said, oh, if I knew where I might find him, I'd order my arguments before him. Uh, God gave Job that opportunity. And, and God asked Job, I think it's um, 30-some questions in succession before Job ever has an opportunity to answer. When he did, he just covered his mouth and confessed he was a sinner. That's why, that was his response to what God had told him. But God then rebuked those three men and said he would have mercy upon them based upon the prayers of Job. Job prayed for those three men. God was Job's witness, and God to be your witness, and God is my witness. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, and verse 16, the apostle Paul said, For the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Now, you've got a spirit inside of you, and I'm not talking about the spirit of man. I'm talking about the spirit of God that God placed in your heart and soul when he born you the spirit of God. The spirit, the third person of the Godhead, bears witness of your spirit to what? That you are the sons of God. You say, Brother Ronald, how do I know I'm one of God's elect? How do I know I'm one of God's children? How do I know I'm one of God's people? Belong to him. Does the spirit talk to you? Uh, do you feel the comfort of the spirit from time to time? Do you pray and, and the spirit responds? And the Spirit gives you strength, and the Spirit gives you guidance and direction. Uh, I, I had something the other day, and I called up David, my oldest son. I said, I need you to pray for me right now. I've got to make a decision about something. In a very short period of time, he says, I'm praying right now. I was praying. He was praying. In a short period of time, it seemed like I had a consent of mine, a peace of mind. And I believe the Spirit bore witness of my spirit and gave me that answer to what I was standing in need of. The Spirit bears this our spirit that we are the sons of God. When you're in a gospel meeting like this right here, and God is blessing the preacher, whether it be me or someone else, to speak to you. And, and the words are not just words. The words are something that's reaching down deep in your heart and your soul, and you're encouraged, and you're comforted by what's being said. That Spirit's bearing witness with your spirit. And now you know, now you know, yes, I'm one of the Lord's children. I, I'm the son of the king. <laughs> now, uh, by the time you get home this afternoon, Satan gets on your case, you may have some doubts. But right now, don't worry about him. Just be thankful that God is letting you know, hey, you're my child. 
You listen to what that man said. <laughs> you listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news and glad tidings I'm, I'm putting forth with him to tell you about. Spirit beareth with, with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Witnesses has always been very important. Let's turn over here to the book of 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. And the apostle John says, there's three that bear a record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on this earth, the Spirit and the blood and the water, and these agree in one. He then says in the next verse, if the witness of men, if you receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. God will always be a faithful witness. If you receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, and this is the witness of God, that Jesus Christ is his Son. All right, let's back up just for a moment. There are three that bear a record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Remember, the Word, the word translated record, the Word translated witness are one and the same. There are three that bear a record, there are three that bear witness in heaven. That's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. The Father is referred to as the Father because he is the originator of all things. We owe, him, uh, owe all things to him as our creator God. He's also our heavenly Father. And then there's the Son, represented here by the Word, W-O-R-D, capital W-O-R-D, that we read about in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and this life was the light of men. And there's the Holy Spirit. Now I believe verse 7 here, it says there are three that bear a record in heaven, and verse 8, and there are three on this earth, and the Spirit that bear a record on the earth, the spirit, the blood, and the water, and these three agree in one, I think have primary reference to the divinity and deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the next verse is what I've already quoted, but let's look at it again. If you receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, and this is God's witness that Jesus Christ is his eternal son. So we have a testimony in heaven. Yes, the word became incarnate, the word became flesh and blood, the word... Came, you know, John, John 1, 14, for the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, mean tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten uh, father, uh, son of the father. And then these three that bear record on, uh, on the earth, the blood and the water and the spirit. I believe the Lord gave testimony to Jesus' son, first of all, when he was baptized in Jordan's river. When John the Baptist baptized him, heaven opened up and the Spirit of God descended in the body form in shape of a dove, and the voice rang out saying, This is my beloved Son, of whom I am well pleased. The Lord also spoke on the mountain of transfiguration, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. And then there's always been a lot of speculation about the water and the blood. I try to keep it fairly simple here. On the cross, something happened to Jesus Christ on the cross that was according to prophecy, but not according to the command of Pilate. Pilate gave his soldiers permission to go and break the legs of those three on the cross, the two thieves and the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring about a quicker death. They broke the legs of the thieves. When they got to Jesus Christ, he was already dead. They did not break his legs because he was already dead. If they had broken his legs, the scripture wouldn't have been fulfilled. The scripture was, not a bone in his body shall be broken. So the soldiers did not do something here that they were commanded to do. 
then they did something they were not commanded to do so that scripture might be fulfilled. They took a sword and pierced his side and what happened? Out came both blood and water. This shows the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The God-man is, you know, he's the son of God and the son of man. The son of man is the one who died, not the son of God. He came to this world, took upon himself a body of flesh and blood, like unto his brethren. And then the Lord offered himself on Calvary. The Lord laid his life down. A sword pierced his side. Blood and water came forth from his side, showing he was a real man who died a real death, pitching his humanity. The spirit and the water and the blood all agree in one. Now, if you see the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. And God's testimony has always been great. The first time, the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament went by various names. But the first time it's ever called the, test, the tabernacle of testimony is in Numbers chapter 17, where we wound up last Sunday talking about Aaron's rod that budded. It's referred to as the tabernacle of testimony. Why is that? The tabernacle, tabernacle of witness. Why is it called a tabernacle of witness, tabernacle of testimony? Because it's all about God. That tabernacle may have looked, you know, uh, anything uh, like anything but things of God to the natural eye, but to the eye of faith. Everything about that tabernacle pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a tabernacle of testimony, a tabernacle of witness. Seven articles of furniture in that tabernacle. You have the altar of burnt offerings and sacrifices pointing to the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have the altar of incense. You have the seven uh, golden candlestick. You have the uh, table of shoe bread. You have the golden laver where they washed in. You go to the holiest of the holies. You got the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, you got the testimony of God. You got the law that he wrote with his finger on top of Mount Sinai is now kept securely and safely in the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark of Witness, the Ark of Testimony, because God's will and God's counsel is all revealed in that. There was a golden pot of manna, pointing him as the bread of life. There's Aaron's rod that budded, we spoke about last Sunday. They're pointing to the power of life that only God has. He brought life out of that which was lifeless. It's the Ark of Testimony. When you come to the ninth chapter of Hebrews, we've been looking at a verse each Sunday out of Hebrews concerning the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you get to Hebrews chapter 9, it begins to give you a comparison and contrast between that earthly sanctuary and that heavenly sanctuary. That earthly sanctuary was made by the hands of men out of earthly things for an earthly existence. But the heavenly sanctuary was not made with hands. You find that earthly sanctuary was limited geographically. It could only be in one place at one time. The Lord Jesus Christ is omnipresent. He's always present everywhere. There's not a place he's not present. That earthly sanctuary had access only to Israelites. But that heavenly sanctuary is open to all God's family out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people upon the face of this earth. That earthly sanctuary... Uh, was uh, about temporal things, external things. That heavenly sanctuary is about eternal things, about internal things. All the offering sacrifices back there in that day that took place in that tabernacle could never change a person's heart. I'll say that again. It could never change a person's heart. But if you'll go back and read the latter part of Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, you'll find this, where he says, In that day I'll make uh, this covenant to the household of Israel, 
No longer shall they teach any man nor his neighbor to know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the grace of them, because I write my laws in their minds and print them in their hearts. That stems from the Old Covenant and New Covenant. And that high priest, by the way, when he went once a year into the holiest of holies on the day of atonement to sprinkle the blood of the offering sacrifice upon the Ark of the Covenant, he came out. The Lord Jesus Christ went into glory. He's still there. The high priest came out. He came out to bless the people. There's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will leave the heavenly sanctuary. It will not come to bless the people. It will come to get the people and take them home to glory. That first covenant dealt with animal sacrifice, the blood of animal sacrifices and multiple offerings and sacrifices. That heavenly sanctuary deals with the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood and one offering and one sacrifice. Those offerings and sacrifices in the earthly sanctuary never put away sin. The one offering sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ put away sin eternally forever and forevermore. It obtained eternal redemption for us. When you compare the two, that's just some of the comparisons and contrast between the two, you see. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is that faithful witness. The Lord Jesus Christ uh, is in that heavenly sanctuary. And let me say this. Never put your spiritual values in in things that's built by men. That tabernacle was built by men, earthly men, earthly hands, earthly materials. It was replaced by Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonian uh, army. Then when they came out of captivity, they rebuilt the temple and Herod enhanced it later on. And then the Roman army destroyed it. It's destroyed. It's no longer in existence. But the great things I'm telling you about aren't made with hands. They're heavenly and they're eternal, right? Now, let's go back over here to Hebrews chapter 12 just for a moment. It opens up as we started out. Wherefore, seeing, understanding, in other words, that we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, here are witnesses. They're not witnesses about what they've seen and what they've heard. They're witnesses unto us what they experienced. Notice how he describes them. They're not just witnesses. They're a cloud of witnesses. It kind of seems a little strange, doesn't it? A cloud of witnesses. But the Israelites, these Hebrews that Paul's writing to, was familiar with the cloud. When God brought them out of the land of Egypt, how did he guide and protect them and preserve them? It was with a cloud. Man, it was a, a cloud of a pillar in the daytime, a pillar of fire at night. I don't think these are two separate ones. I think it's one and the same. And in the 14th chapter of Numbers, it tells us the cloud was over top of them, which makes it then the cloud went before them, behind them, and on either side of them as a wall of protection. That cloud prevented the scorching heat, you know, from adverse effects upon them. It gave them shade, in other words. It gave them shade. It gave them guidance. gave them direction. The Lord said, when the cloud moves, you move. When the cloud stops, you stop. I remember back before we blessed to build our church here. You know, trying to look forward down the road, how we try to do things, one thing or another. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I'm going to remind you. I told the church, I said, the speed in which we move will be according to the speed that God wants us to move. 
I said, when the Lord moves us, we'll move. And the Lord says, stop, we're going to stop. When that cloud in the daytime and at nighttime, and by the way, when the sun went down, that pillar of a cloud became a pillar of fire. By that, they could receive warmth and also gave them protection from the predators and everything else that was around them. But the Lord says, when it moves, you move. When it stops, you stop. Now, don't you just imagine there were some days when it was 70 degrees, not any other cloud in the sky, just this cloud. And the weather was great, and the cloud didn't move. You reckon the people had something to say about that? I just kind of have a feeling they did. I imagine they probably come to Moses and say, why are we traveling today? Perfect traveling conditions today. Why are we not moving down the road today? And Moses said, you see that cloud? Yeah, it's not moving. <laughs> it's not moving. The Lord said, if it don't move, you don't move. But when it does move, then we move. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul starts this chapter open uh, out to the Corinthian church. And he says to them, I will not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them, concerning our, our forefathers. He says how they were all under the cloud and came across through the sea, how they were baptized unto Moses under, in, into the, uh, under the cloud and through the sea. He connects a cloud in the sea. Now, how in the world did Moses baptize people under the cloud? He didn't baptize anybody with water. But baptism is an immersion. And we find that they were under the authority of Moses. They were under the authority of Moses, and Moses was under the authority of the cloud that represented God. So when the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. They were under the authority of Moses. Moses was their God-appointed leader, you see. So they were familiar with this expression, the cloud. And he says, they did all eat of that same spiritual meat. They drank all that same spiritual drink. And they all drank of that rock, that spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ. He said, I want you to understand that. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning our fathers that were under the cloud that passed through the sea. He takes them back to that experience. There must be something really important, really significant about that experience. We see a deliverance there, do we not? A deliverance of an entire nation without the loss of one. As I like to say, Moses uh, brought a, a, people, a nation of people across the Red Sea without the loss of one, but the Lord Jesus Christ delivered a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people without the loss of one. That's why he's a greater deliverer. This is a cloud of witnesses. It's a great cloud of witnesses. What are they bearing record to? What are they witnessing unto us about? Well, let's go back and look at a list of the characters. Now, if the Lord had told me, he says, I want you to study the Old Testament and I want you to write down about 16 names of some people in the Old Testament to put in this chapter for me. I think I'd have got some of these, but there's some of these I'd have left out. <laughs> and there's some that's left out I would have put in, but since he didn't ask me, then I'm just going to take the ones he did. These are handpicked from the Old Testament handpicked. God picked them and put them in chapter 11 to give us encouragement. He put them in chapter 11 to bear witness of several things. They're a witness of the promises of God and the power of God and that God is able. Very first thing he says has to do with Abel. 
By faith, Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than that of Cain, testifying that he was righteous. His offering was a testimony that he was righteous, and God accepted it. Then we talk about Enoch. It was translated, taken to heaven. And then you go, he's going to talk about Noah and the ark. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God gave Noah and his family a total, complete deliverance from the wickedness and the evil of his day. Now, there's a lot of wickedness and evil in our day, but God who delivered Noah and his family is quite capable of delivering you and delivering me. And then he talks about Abraham. And he talks about Sarah. Abraham, let me say something about Abraham. He calls Abraham out there in the land there of the Chaldees, going to land that Abraham had never seen. He said, go to land, I will show you. And Abraham picked up lock, stock, and barrel and left the land he grew up in, the land of his nativity, and followed God, trusting in God. That's for me. And then Sarah received strength. By faith, Sarah received strength to conceive and brought forth a son when her womb was dead, trusting that God was able to deliver, that God was able to form that which he had promised. That's the testimony, that's the witness. You see, God is able. <laughs> if God is able to make a, enable a 90-year-old woman to conceive and have a child, I think he'd take care of little old me in this world. If God could take a man that's dead by nature, Abraham, enable him to father a son when he's 100 years of age, I think he'd take care of little old me in this world. What about you? And Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, we're right in the middle of Joseph right now. So we won't say anything here, we might say Wednesday night. Then he talks about the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. When you read the accounts of these things, don't think these are fables. They are not. These are real events that took place. When they marched around the city of Jericho, one time a day for six days, on day number seven, they walked around seven times, and those walls came crumbling down. That ought to mean something to me. This is just not ordinary witnesses I'm talking to you about. These is a great cloud of witnesses, right? A great cloud of witnesses. Great has uh, various uh, applications to it. Sometimes the word great can just have reference to a size of a crowd, and that's it. Sometimes it has, uh, you know, a reference to something that is really good, a quality. You ever you ate a, a piece of good pecan pie that Brother Tony Richmond makes? When you eat a piece of that pie, you say, that's great. <laughs> Don't change nothing. Karen to make something, it is just wonderful. It's great. And I'll tell her, don't change nothing. <laughs> but she likes to experiment. But it's just good like it is. <laughs> don't change anything. These cloud of witnesses are great. They had they have great lives. They had great experiences. They have a great testimony. They're great witnesses in every way. They're going to witness to you that God is able. They're going to witness you that God is powerful. They're going to witness you that God's promises are sure. They're going to witness you that God will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what they're witnessing about. Wherefore, seeing, we're compassed that we're encircled about. Just like God's army circled around Elisha. When uh, the servant looked, he saw horses and chariots of fire all about Elisha. 
I'm telling you, these witnesses are encircled all around us, my friends, just like that cloud did. That cloud was before and behind them and on both sides of them. This is a great cloud of witnesses. Wherefore, seeing we're compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, then let us run this race with patience. With patience. Now, that ought to tell you this is not a 100-yard dash race. This is not a relay race. This is a long, long cross-country race, okay? And when your race begins, it ends when you pass this scene of life. The races for some will be shorter than others. The race for some will be longer than others. But as you run this Christian race, the race of discipleship, I'm telling you, the, you know, when you run the cross-country race, they got identifying marks along the way. They got markers to keep you on course, right? So you'll know where to turn and not to turn and this, that, and the other. And so God's Word is that way to us. God's Word will tell you where to go, where not to go. It'll guide and direct you in the path that you're to run. Run this race, what? With patience. That tells me it's a long-distance race. And you know why you need patience? Romans chapter 5 says you need patience because tribulations work with patience and experience and patient experience and experience hope. So you're going to have a few problems along the last pathway. So you've got to have a little patience. I'm, sometimes I'm not sure I know what the definition of patience is. <laughs> People say, I, I want to be patient. I just want an answer right now. You know, you got to be patient when you go to a bank. I had this experience the other day. I tell you, I was just plumb. I didn't know what to think about it. I go into the bank. There's somebody at the window. One person in front of me, and they got us, you know, this has been a few weeks ago. And the guy's six foot apart. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, uh, I mean, I don't know what in the world they're transacting up there. It must be getting a mortgage out or something. And finally, the guy in front of me turns around, looks at me, and says, What's the name of this bank? I said, Regions? <laughs> now I'm highly suspicious. <laughs> Here's a man standing in the bank lobby, been standing there a while, and all of a sudden he asked me the name of the bank. <laughs> and a little bit, he, he turned around and like he's exasperated because he's having to wait so long and leaves the bank. And I'm glad he, glad he left. <laughs> he stood there so long, he forgot what bank he was in. <laughs> He must have been in a different bank than what he thought. <laughs> sometimes I'm not even sure what the word patience means. I don't know if sometimes I've ever had any, but I know I need it. So run this race with patience, looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down the right hand of the majesty on high. For, the most perfect and greatest example of anything in your life will always be in the Savior. We can find examples in other people. These witnesses in Hebrews 11 are great examples for us, but then he points to a greater example. Looking at Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. He's the author. He's the beginner of your faith. He's the perfecter of your faith. Looking at Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him... When I read the life of Christ, I find little to, to rejoice in uh, that he would have had his entire life. He was a, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
he was criticized and he was, um, you know, rebuked uh, on every hand. Even when he done miracles, he said he did it by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. But I'm telling you, the Lord Jesus Christ had an ultimate goal in mind. And that was to save his people from their sins. It was to deliver them from the bondage they were in based upon the, 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 you know, the sin environment we live in here, our sinful nature, the sinful world. And the Lord Jesus Christ knew with his offering of sacrifice, he would release us, he would redeem us, he would justify us, he would save us from our sin and deliver us, my friends, from this old wicked world to be with him in glory some sweet day. That's the joy that was set before him. I tell wonderful brothers and sisters down in South Georgia that I go and visit with a few times each year. I said, you know, I can't get down here without going through Atlanta. I just can't do it. And I never, I, I just don't enjoy going through Atlanta anymore. In fact, I never have enjoyed going through Atlanta. I just enjoy it far less now than I ever have in the past. But you know what? I endure Atlanta because I got some good brothers and sisters on the other side down there that I like being with. And then when I'm coming home, I got to go back to Atlanta. <laughs> you ever tried to go around Atlanta? I mean, way around Atlanta. Right as we moved up here, I told Karen we were heading down back to Florida and Bobby and Sarah's with us. I said, let's take a different route. Let's just go down through Montgomery. About a three-hour additional trip. They never let me forget it. Never have they let me forget that. So unfortunately, the shortest route is through Atlanta. But I endure it going, I endure it coming. Because there's joy on the other side for me. When I'm coming back, I can't wait to get back home. I can't wait to get back and see Karen. I can't wait to get back and see you. There's joy on the other side. And that's just a, a poor analogy, I know, con compared to the, analogy, to, to, to the truth of what Jesus Christ did, who for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy before him? It was not the thorn, uh, uh, crown of thorns. What was the joy before him? It was not the, uh, the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet. What was the joy before him? It was not the sword in his side, was it? What was the joy that was set before him then? It had to be the release the salvation and the deliverance of his bride, of a people that God gave him before time ever began, that one day uh, they'd be free from the bondage of the law of sin and death, and that God Almighty would send his son again the second time, and this time to gather them all home in his arms and take them right into glory. Looking at Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy, that was set before him. He endured the cross. He endured what was before him for the joy that was set before him. And sometimes you just have to endure some things, brother. Sometimes you just have to endure some things for the joy that's waiting for you on the other side. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in these sin that doth so easily beset us and run this race with patience.